Welcome to the Renewables Talent Lab, the number one catalyst for advancing careers and building high-performance teams in the renewable sector. Sponsored by the Anthony Michael Group, helping companies secure in-demand talent across a continuum from concept through commercialization and beyond in areas like energy storage, electric vehicles, hydrogen, solar, wind, and more. Here's your co-hosts, Mitch Robbins and Adam Sapi. All right, welcome to the Renewables Talent Lab podcast, where we talk all things talent within the renewable energy industry. I uh, am Mitch Robbins, the founder and managing director here at the Anthony Michael Group, joined by my co-host, Adam Sapi. Uh, principal talent advisor here. Guys, this is episode number two of this podcast that we are so excited to be launching for the Renewables Energy, where we feel like there's a gap. You know, there's so many leaders and rising stars out there who have accomplished amazing things and continue to do so. We want to share their stories so that for those who are looking for opportunities for different ways to build high-performing teams or for their own career growth along their own journey, can listen to some of the stories that we are proud to share on this podcast. Joining us today, we're honored to have Mr. Scott Bolton Scott comes to us with over 25 years of experience in the energy and utilities industries with a focus on public policy and regulatory affairs, developing physical asset and market-based solutions, external relations, and creating coalitions to achieve a variety of initiatives. Scott is passionate about crafting energy storage solutions for a cleaner, more reliable grid. As the Executive Vice President of Global Policy and Regulatory Affairs at HydroStore, Scott leads the development and execution of the company's policy and regulatory strategy across multiple markets markets and jurisdiction. Now, if you aren't familiar with HydroStore, HydroStore is a long duration energy storage solutions provider that provides reliable and affordable utility integration of long duration energy storage, enabling grid operators to scale renewable energy and secure grid capacity. The company has proven that its patented advanced compressed air energy storage or A CAES technology can provide long duration energy storage and enable the renewable energy transition. Prior to joining HydroStore, Scott served in a variety of leadership roles over 19 years for Pacific Corp. And notably, Scott served as a legislative aide in our United States Senate and prior to that, served in the United States Army. So without further ado, Scott, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me on, fellas. Yeah, we are grateful that you're here and excited to kind of dig in and, and learn about your story. Scott, why don't you kick us off, man? I, I explained that you've had a tenured career already over, what, 25 years in this industry. You've been in government, you've been with major corporations, now you're with this startup, but you're leading policy and regulatory affairs across the world right now. How does a guy say, you know, get into what you're doing here? Where, take us back if you would. Yeah, you know, it's probably you know, one part luck and one part ambition. I uh, was fortunate enough when I left the military and was finishing college, I was able to do a paid work study program that led to having a few years working for my local you know, member of the House of Representatives here, here in Oregon. And, you know, that kind of opened me up to how, not just how laws are made, you know, it's the old schoolhouse rock. You know, I'm just a bill. It, it wasn't just understanding, you know, the legislative process. It really was understanding how to work with people, constituents. You know, there, there are so many folks who, you know, rely on getting their social security check on time or their veterans benefits or, you know, have, are experiencing some kind of issue with the federal government. And you're in this very unique position to be able to help them to be able to walk them through and navigate sometimes very complex bureaucracies. And, you know, that opened me up to just a whole 
avenue of policy and policy making that you know, I hadn't really been exposed to before. And after having done that for a number of years, became really interested in better understanding the intersection between business and the private sector and the government. And it seemed to me like, you know, greater familiarity on both sides would get things done, you know, much more efficiently. And I was really intrigued by infrastructure development. And at that time, you know, watching the build out of a lot of the backbone infrastructure that powers the internet, uh, seeing deregulation of the telecommunications industry, and then seeing how you know, those same skills and, you know, measures often translated into the energy world as well. So, you know, you blink and a lot of years go by. It's pretty amazing, but you get to observe a lot along the way. Uh, you're muted, Rich. Hey, that's that's like a pro host there of the show, right? <laughs> hey, hey uh, host, you're on mute there. <laughs> Scott, what I, what I was saying is you're going to have to correct me if I'm wrong. I'm going to try to rely on my photographic memory because I didn't mention it in the introduction. But if I'm not mistaken, you majored in political science, correct, in college? Is that right? I did. And it was kind of calling a little bit of an audible at the line. I originally, when I first went to college, I was interested in being a history teacher. That was, awesome. that was my original goal. I was really fascinated with early 20th century history. And it was through this work study job and again, being able to work, you know, an actual live political process that really helped me uh, reorient my education and uh, got me into the political science field. Part of the reason I asked, because I was just wondering if even back then you knew like, hey, I've got this interest, you know, not only with the government piece, but kind of what it's almost, uh, you know, a precursor to where you are today. You kind of had this interest all along all along the way. That's why I was curious. Yeah, it's, um, I don't know how rare it is, but for me, it was an opportunity to take a liberal arts education and give it a real-time application. <laughs> so, you know, rather than being interesting at cocktail parties or, you know, having something that set me up for further academia, you know, it, it was pretty real-time, you know, learning about the functions and branches of government, learning different policymaking theories and understanding some of, you know, everything from founding fathers to other, you know, great political thinkers and being able to kind of see that in real time as I, you know, worked as a daffer in the U.S. House at the time. That's awesome, man. And so fast forwarding, I mentioned you worked for Pacific Corp, a major organization for almost 20 years. And now here you are, really kind of in the thick of things with this rapidly growing startup, that's got to be an interesting transition to say the least, as far as what you were used to versus what you're experiencing now. Would you talk to that a little bit as far as the major differences that you're noticing between the two? Sure. And, you know, for folks who may not be familiar with Pacific Corp, Pacific Corp is a six-state electric utility in the Western U.S. So headquartered in Portland, Oregon, but with major service area and customer bases in Utah, in Wyoming, in Idaho, Washington State, Oregon, and in Northern California. So one of the largest transmission providers in the Western U.S., uh, it's vertically integrated utility that probably has as much diversity and kind of number of power plants attached to it as you know, almost any other system in North America. It's owned by Berkshire Hathaway Energy since 2006. And yeah, it was a amazing company to work for, you know, almost any electric utility 
you know, by, you know, the time of this podcast dropping, you know, is over a hundred years old, you know, our electric utility sector is well established and, you know, is built up household names and, you know, brands over, you know, decades and decades. And so, you know, being part of on one hand, which is a very mature industry, very mature business, but also undergoing some really rapid and transformational changes over just the last 15, 20 years, uh, certainly during my career there, has been a, you know, a fascinating experience. And it's one that you know, has fueled even further interest and, and frankly, curiosity about other parts of the energy sector. What's it like, though, coming from a situation where you've got a lot of structure, right? You probably had a pretty... How big was your team there, Scott? Oh, depends on different iterations and jobs, but, you know, have certainly managed, you know, anywhere from small teams to, you know, close to a hundred employees in our transmission and, you know, market space. But yeah, mature, disciplined, organized, those are all, you know, definitely verbs I would apply to if any, you know, regulated utility of it, of that scale. Cause I'm just thinking, so obviously you had more hands to help. You could delegate more from a, an executive leadership position. How many employees uh, does HydroStore have as of today? As of, you know, with uh, roughly... With the, with the end of year hiring binge, I, I would say we're probably just over seventy employees okay. worldwide at this point. So well, that's um, a significant company, difference. Yeah, the whole company is is smaller than my last team at, at Pacific Corp. Right. So if you would talk to that piece, because I'm sure it's when you work for a company for almost 20 years and you're used to a corporate structure, you're used to the opportunity to delegate and the fact that you've got other people to help. And then all of a sudden you're coming to really dig into the, the ground level trenches and help build this thing. That's got to be a major difference for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly, you know, a development and technology company like HydroStore, you know, it's still... It's still evolving. And I think, you know, the company that I came into just six months ago, you know, here at, at the end of 2023 looks a lot different than it did six months ago. And I'm reasonably confident it's going to be different six months from now, you know, and it's growth that is fueled by, you know, commercial development, by physical development and by growing interest in its technology. And, and that's a very different experience than certainly what I had at, you know, much more, you know, mature and, you know, experienced utility company. But what I also say is that there's a lot of parallels, you know, org structures, you know, are generally, you know, fairly rational. You know, they look similar from, from company to company. You have leadership at the top and you have support systems to, you know, really wrap around what your commercial objectives are. And, you know, that's been true at Pacific Corp. That's certainly true now at HydroStore as we, you know, look to scale up, you know, the deployment of our specific technology into the clean energy space. Is there one or two things that stand out to you that, because this is your first time working for a startup business, right? I had a brief, probably three-year stint with a, a startup in the broadband telecom space prior to coming to Pacific Corp. But that was a startup within um, already pretty established business. So truly from, you know, a startup that, you know, has has gone from just a few dozen employees to one that looks to build, you know, major infrastructure projects on at least two and probably three continents within the next, you know, decade. That's very different. Yeah. Because I was going to say, is there one, if not two things that stand out for you as far as this transition that you wish somebody would have given you a heads up to? That you've experienced so far? Oh, in the in this current role. Well, I mean, certainly so far I would say that my surprises have been generally pleasant. Because here, here's the thing. A small company allows you to know everyone. Yeah. yeah. There's, you know, that was always one of the 
the frustrations, you know, in big organizations is that, you know, it's just kind of hard to know people, you know, unless, you know, you're a little bit of an extrovert and strike up a conversation in an elevator or in a hallway. There's a lot of faces that you'll see and you'll never quite know, you know, who they are, or what they do or what their contribution is to, you know, your enterprise. And from a startup perspective, you know, you have that intimacy, you have that opportunity to know who the team is, what they do. And, you know, that really creates some bonds and I think some resiliency through, you know, what, you know, kind of the trials and tribulations that a startup's going to go through. You know, I, I, I would say another big difference is if you're in a startup or in a development environment, you're going to have good days and bad days. You know, there are days where you're going to win and there are days that feel like the world's against you. And, you know, you've got to have that camaraderie. You've got to have that vision to keep everybody together and keep morale up, frankly, so you can get the job done. Whereas I think in a much more mature enterprise, you know, you have such confidence that you're going to be there the next day that, you know, you kind of overlook those, those those temporal ups and downs. That's interesting. Well, and it's amazing that you say that because if we look at 2023 and and it, what's been going on with with some of the layoffs, we've seen such a just across. And I'm not talking about just renewables. I'm talking about the macro economy. We've seen companies that thought they were stable and decided to lay off thousands at a time. So I think a lot of times people look and say, "Well, startups, it's a risk." Well, any job is a risk at this point. With kind of if it if we haven't seen that now and kind of what happened in 08, 09. But, you know, I think one of the other biggest concerns that people working at startups have with folks who are coming for the first time to that environment is, are they willing to do the work? Will they roll up their sleeves? Can they do the work? Are they okay with the fact that, you know, the saying, wear multiple hats rings very, very true in a startup. And, uh, and you're proof that you were an executive in a big corporation and uh, they obviously saw something in you and trusted what you had to bring to the table and here you are doing the work. So that's why I keep pushing on it because I'm sure there's people going to be listening to this who are thinking, hey, is it time? Should I really take the leap and, and maybe join a company that's kind of on the rise versus a, a large entity? Yeah, you hit on a really interesting theme there, which is, you know, over the course of my career at a place like Civic Corp, you know, I, I was able to achieve, you know, some level of, you know, leadership and management expertise, but, you know, I wasn't born an executive, you know, everybody starts somewhere and it's that accumulation of experiences, that, that growth in responsibilities and exposures that, you know, I think, you know, accumulate and kind of give you that, you know, that, that broader base of knowledge to, you know, be entrusted with more responsibility within an organization. And it is kind of a hallmark and, and, and a bit of a blessing from working with a Berkshire Hathaway company is that, you know, we were fairly flat organizationally. Leaders are expected to be really familiar with their business, with their work, you know, you don't get hired just to manage people. You get hired because you have something to contribute into, you know, whatever process or whatever operation you're assigned to. And so in that regard, the transition to working to, you know, more of a startup environment hasn't been that that rocky because I, over the course of my career, I've always been in the work. This is a level and granularity of being in the work that honestly, I haven't been in quite that same level for a while. But I've been there before and I can mm -hmm. draw on those past experiences and, you know, kind of know how to make a copy and <laughs> know where the copy maker is. And, you know, I think there's this perception that titles lead to certain, you know, work environments or, you know, kind of what your, your day's going to look like and, you know, how, how dirty your hands are going to be. And I just haven't found that. I found that, you know, that's going to be really individually driven. And if you're intellectually curious, 
if you're someone who feels like you can't really ask somebody to do something that you yourself are not willing to do or that you haven't had some exposure familiarity with, you know, that's going to be a different kind of leader. Yeah, it's really good perspective. And I think it's important for those listening uh, that are working for bigger corporations that want to make this jump that jump that it's up to you to articulate your willingness, number one, your eagerness, number two, and your know-how, number three. Because I think that you're right. There's a huge perception out that executives coming from bigger corporations delegate too much and they're not willing or able to roll up their sleeves. And I think that some of it is true, but I think also a lot of the onus the responsibility falls on the shoulder of the person interviewing to explain why that's not the case and kind of break that that stereotype. And believe me, I mean, as much as we don't want stereotypes out there about many different things, they're out there. So yeah. it's up to us to kind of fight against it. So I really appreciate that perspective, uh, Scott. And I know, Adam, we want to pick Scott's brain uh, on his uh, expertise as it relates to policy and kind of reg affairs and what's going on the state of uh, renewables from that standpoint. So if you would, uh, wouldn't mind jumping in, because I know you've got a couple of great yeah, questions. Yeah, I'm to ask excited to, to pick his brain in. And I was chuckling, you know, with the Berkshire comment, you know, that's a, a hallmark of Warren Buffett having those lean uh, leaders. So that, that makes sense why that aligned well. Um, yeah. And you had mentioned early in our conversation, Scott, about your fascination or your interest in kind of that intersection between business and government. I am as well. And it's really fascinating to see how the IRA is rolling out. Uh, they were strategic in kind of where these big projects are going, you know, maybe his more historically red areas and they're getting buy-in from, you know, former coal areas or Houston, Texas is making a big push. And it's kind of cool to me to see mostly it's, hey, we're, we're excited about this. We're, we're changing, you know, where jobs will be. We're getting the same maybe revenue. Maybe that's driving it. But I am seeing a little bit of pushback. Maybe, you know, Gover Governor Abbott in Texas, it seems like they're tightening regulations to try to slow progress in the renewable clean energy space. I was just curious, Mitch and I have talked about this offline, if there are major overhauls to the IRA after the 2024 U.S. presidential election, you know, what impact you might see either short term or midterm or long term, you know, from a regulatory standpoint at a larger scale? Yeah, um, there's a lot there. I think maybe a couple of thoughts here. I mean, one is, you know, governors are some of the best ambassadors for investment in America, especially foreign investment. And when you look at the renewable space, clean tech, a lot of the early investment in that area, you think about wind turbines and those technologies coming from Europe. You think about, you know, Asia sourcing a lot of early solar technologies. The renewables that were hitting our shores needed to be assembled, needed to be fabricated. You know, those industries you know, really started in other places, but have grown in the U.S. And, you know, it was oftentimes, you know, governors who would do trade delegations to really encourage uh, that investment in their state, create jobs in, in their local economy. And so it is a little interesting that, you know, there, there may be some pushback or there may be some different prioritization from kind of that traditional role of, you know, every, every, you know, governor wants to have that new factory, you know, everybody wants to cut into the ribbon and, and open up something that's going to, you know, really bring prosperity to their communities. The Inflation Reduction Act, you know, I think has the ability to supercharge that kind of growth. You know, so much of the policy embedded within the IRA is looking at onshoring or domesticating manufacturing and production of the technologies that, you know, are going to be the the backbone of America's energy system, you know, for decades to come. And frankly, are already, you know, growing within our energy system. So, you know, solar 
wind, more efficient, you know, hydropower technologies, energy efficiency and demand response applications, a lot of the software running through the system, all of that, you know, is already here. The IRA really looks to ensure, you know, a domestic supply chain, domestic jobs to feed that supply chain and to, you know, ensure that, you know, we have, you know, less reliance on other countries to provide the systems that we need. I mean, to me, that that's one of the core strategies of the IRA. So, you know, a state may take issue with, you know, the energy transition writ large. They may be protectionist as far as some of their local industries and, and jobs. But my sense is, is that one state or one area that doesn't want to, you know, work with its private sector to you know, locate those, those opportunities is probably going to lose out to, you know, another state that will, that is really where this is going. That said, you know, a lot of our energy infrastructure is located in, you know, rural, or I hate to use, you know, red, blue, you know, color schemes here, but, you know, in, you know, more conservative corners of the country and, you know, they're benefiting from increased investment. They're benefiting from the jobs that come along and the property tax base being increased. And frankly, the economic diversity that I think, at least so far, we've seen from, you know, this energy transition. Nice. I appreciate that. So like Texas, for example, which is ripe for solar, obviously, you, is there a scenario where a leader could say, hey, we want to protect our other industries. We can just try to block this and buy tightening regulations, or you don't think that's a, a sustainable uh, model? I mean, I, I yeah. Yeah, I'm not here to pick on Texas. What I'd say, though, is energy economics are nonpartisan. Energy economics, you know, the numbers are the numbers. And, you know, what we've seen, you know, the value proposition that we see from renewable energy is not some ideological bend. It's not to, you know, punish anybody or to, you know, make old jobs go away. It really is that you know, done right, you know, renewable energy can be a lower cost and deflationary yep. impact in the energy system. I mean, if you think about, you know, just comparing a natural gas plant to, you know, say an equivalent wind and solar, you know, capability. Yeah. Right now, gas is that always on or always available dispatchable technology. And that's why, you know, it's not going away overnight, but you got to pay for that fuel. You've got to you know, you have a fuel supply chain that you have to manage that is a commodity that's going to move around in price. The wind, the sun, you know, isn't a fuel. It's not a commoditized fuel. Okay. It's there when it's there and it's free when it's there. And so, you know, think about it as the difference between, you know, driving a car that requires gas and driving a car that doesn't. You know, eventually over time, over the life of that asset, you know, taking fuel out of the equation is going to be a big, you know, economic benefit. And when I was on the utility side of things, you know, we saw that. You know, we saw those benefits flowing to customers. You know, we saw periods in the wholesale electricity markets where, you know, energy costs were just through the floor. And even at times where there was overproduction of wind and solar, those with surplus would pay those who didn't have as much or had a, you know, an, had the ability to back off of a gas plant or a coal plant to take cheaper or you know, almost free, you know, solar power. And you see that in the real-time energy markets today. And again, those, those markets aren't, you know, liberal or conservative. Those markets are delivering the most efficient economic outcome. And so, yeah, there's going to be some disruption and we need to be conscious of how to manage through economic disruption and job disruption through the the energy transition, but the base economics and, and the direction and frankly, opportunities that we have in front of us are very real and 
very consumer friendly. Awesome. I agree. Scott, we really, really appreciate you being here, man. I want to wrap up by asking you, what are you excited about with what's going on with HydroStore? We started to kind of nibble at it a little bit as far as the growth that you've experienced employee-wise in a very short period of time. You've been there, if I'm not mistaken, since June of 2023. Is that right? Yep. So share with us, what are you excited about? Where's the company going? So for those that don't know us, we are an advanced compressed air energy storage system. So think about a giant air compressor that uses, you know, a deep cavern construction to hold air. You know, we use water to keep that air in place and then to move it around back through, you know, generation through turbines to put energy back on the grid when it's needed. At its base, it's infrastructure. And so what I'm excited about is that energy storage is that missing piece of the puzzle to make those other renewable energy technologies work. You know, the the wind doesn't always blow, the sun doesn't always shine, but storage will bridge and make those other technologies more seamless. And so you have now, you know, 20 years ago, I would have said energy storage is kind of the white whale. It's kind of mythology, you know, it's something everybody is talking about and chasing, but we're not sure if it's real. But with the advent of batteries and now with these bigger infrastructure storage solutions, storage is real. It's becoming cost effective and operationally, it's fairly simply simple to integrate into the grid with these other resources. And so you're starting to see that picture come together. That excites me. What also excites me is that when we develop our technology, when we talk about, you know, building caverns at, you know, 2000 meters to store energy, when we talk about, you know, the heat exchanger, the compressor technologies, the generators, these are existing equipment. These are existing technologies today that we're repurposing and reassembling in a different way. And you put that all together and that retains, that extends a lot of the traditional energy workforce and jobs and supply chains that you know, we see today. So I think some of the fear around the energy transition, around job loss, or, you know, having, you know, some fall off of the traditional energy economy does have a future. It does have a place in some of these emerging technologies like advanced compressed air. And we are more than eager to, you know, put folks who were digging gas storage or hydrocarbon storage facilities. We need those same workers and you know, companies to do that work, to do our compressed air energy storage. And so I think that the future actually looks pretty bright, whether you're just now coming into the clean energy space, or you frankly have always been there, <laughs> just now finding that those same skill sets translate into, you know, decarbonized technologies. I really appreciate the fact that you wrapped with that because wrapped up with that because obviously we have we're having you on the show because we got a lot of respect for your own individual background and what you've done over time and what you can add to the listening audience. But one of the things that I noted about Hydrostore, if I'm not mistaken, it's either under the mission piece or on the company page somewhere on the website. It talks about exactly what you just said. That look, we are looking for people who have a skill set that they've traditionally used elsewhere and how it can transition to be vital talent on our team to serve the company company's mission uh, in the energy storage space. And I think that's huge yeah. because we've run into a lot of businesses who are turning up their nose at that, at the idea that you could take somebody traditionally from the utility space or oil and gas, and how does that translate into the renewable space? And they're missing a 
huge, huge sector of great individuals who could add to the collaboration of a, a strong team. So I love that about Hydrostore. I love that you're kind of sitting right in that uh, uh, link space of what energy storage does for the yeah. rest. Like you said, the sun always doesn't always shine. The wind doesn't always blow. Well, what does energy storage do to kind of link these technologies for the greater future of this transition? So yeah. awesome stuff. Scott, we really appreciate you being here. If it's cool with you on the show notes, we will put up a link to your LinkedIn profile as well as Hydrostore's website. So anybody who's interested can reach out if that's cool with you. Awesome. Sounds great. Really appreciate talking to you, Mitch and Adam. Uh, yeah, absolutely. All right, man. Well, thank you so much for being here. Guys, thanks for listening to another episode here on the Renewables Talent Lab. Adam, appreciate uh, you being the co-host as always, and uh, we'll see you soon in another episode. Thanks, guys. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Renewables Talent Lab podcast. For more content-rich episodes, log on to theanthonymichaelgroup.com or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform.